Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, how you going, mate? Pretty good. It's good. Joining good. us from Burley, uh, Burley Heads, is it? Sunny Burley Heads for the first time this week, I think. Yeah, it's yeah. great. Yeah, nice, mate. So you're up there on holiday slash working. Yeah, working next week. I mean, there's always a little bit reading, yeah. keeping up with markets. Yeah. I've, I, well, you've got to trade that portfolio like every day, <laughs> don't you? So you've got to make that income. <laughs> Fang's still running. Um, yeah, I, think I was just looking at uh, Meta because we've got a question or we're talking about Meta today quickly. Um, shares are up 91% this year. I don't know. Well, I think, what did I say? Fang was up 60% last time? Yeah, something like that. Not to brag. Let's have, a, let's have a look. I'm just get this up on the computer. Um, and so when you're on holiday, you get a lot of reading in. Is that fair to say? Fang's oh, up 37%. got two children, so you get a lot of anything in. What do you mean? You haven't read four books? Come on. <laughs> I do have. There's a book over there next to the TV, which I got started on. What was the book? What's the book? Jay Shetty. Jay Shetty, think, yeah. Think Like a Monk. I'm not sure if you read that one yet. I've heard of it. Jay Shetty is the, um, the host of the, that really – Big podcast, isn't it? The, yeah, one of our competitors, definitely. One of our competitors. Yeah, he he looks he looks across at us and thinks, "Wow, these guys are up and coming." So, <laughs> international uh, podcasts are looking at uh, the Australian Investors Podcast, being intimidated, no doubt. One of the biggest names in the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you get away. Obviously, it's a good chance to switch off. But you were just saying before that you also get a chance to go up to Brizzy and and meet some potential clients. Yeah, so on the road from Monday, family go home Monday, drive up, meet a few people, I think, who are listening to the podcast as well. Oh, cool. um, do a couple of stops on through the Gold Coast and then to Brisbane. Yeah, cool. A few meetings up there, which would be fun. How many how many clients do you have that – so obviously we're based in Melbourne. How many clients would you have that are not based in Melbourne? Say so 70% of our clients would be outside of Melbourne. Oh, really? I think, yeah. Oh, so wow. there's enough, enough in every city for us to be there at least every quarter. Oh, right. Probably okay. From Canberra. Yeah. That's, <laughs> Canberra's that's... more like once or twice a year. Do you have any in Darwin? Do you ever go to like Kakadu or anything? There's actually a couple, but I haven't <laughs> I haven't got approval to travel there for, for meetings yet. Is that on part of your roadshow? <laughs> no, but we should probably include we should it now. Darwin. Yeah. 
But specifically Kakadu, like you have to travel inland. Let's <laughs> <laughs> just think about tax deductions here, Drew. That's all, <laughs> what I'm thinking about. Um, <laughs> You're hiring a bus or is it a caravan for that one? Yeah, well, maybe if we go there, I don't think we'll be allowed to go with a caravan. But uh, no, well, I think for the, like the roadshow, it would be good to drive from Sydney up. It's actually cheaper to drive and do a little like week or two on the road from Sydney to Queensland than it is to fly to all the locations. So that's yeah. probably what we might do or something like that. But um, that'll be a bit of fun. Um, what else is, well, there's not really that much going on in your life then other than just enjoying your holiday. Yeah, I mean, drove down to Byron Bay yesterday and got, I think it took to us, Took us two and a half hours to get home, which was fun. why <laughs> for a forty-minute drive. Uh, there was, I think, it was an oil slick on the freeway on the way home. Oh wow! I've never seen that before. Oh wow, that's not that's not great. Um, Byron's a nice part of the world. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, beautiful beaches. Yeah. Um, so this week, what have you been? Uh, what have you been reading? What have you been looking at? Well, you can't get away from US reporting season, can you? I think you were talking about that during the week as well. Yeah, so the Microsoft result. Massive report. And then I think Amazon went overnight, which might be pushing it to, to get some comments from you out of Amazon. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, was, I was up so early just looking at all of the, uh, all of the, all of the results. Um, I, I, I had to prep the questions for yeah. today's episode, didn't I? Yeah, normally I copy and paste them in, but uh, this week you're all over it. So I just thought, like, just coming back to the Microsoft result real quick, I just thought that was incredible because the thing is like a tr- $2 trillion company and it's growing like business units in double digits. It, and this is after they said, you know, during COVID that we've brought forward five years of demand. It's still growing. Um, and, and part of that's a chat GPT. So, I mean, that's barely had an impact on their profit or earnings yet. Mm. But yeah. it, you can see the massive opportunity that opens. Yeah. But even like like tr- some of the business units, like I think it was like things like Xbox and some of the other things that they own, weren't firing on all cylinders, so to speak. But a lot of it, um, like a lot of the business, like cloud continues to power forward. Um, and it's pretty. It's a pretty impress- impressive business. It's almost so dominant that you still kind of can't believe that there haven't been more antitrust concerns and things like this. But for the most part, systems are go for, for Microsoft. Do you own shares? Uh, not directly. Um but I mean, what was it? I think they had a record day for the for the amount of uh, market capitalization. Mm. Yeah, increase in a single day. Yeah, so it's made two billion dollars yesterday. I think it was up seven percent on a strong report. Yeah, and the value of the business went up one hundred and fifty billion. <laughs> I, I guess that's going to happen though when you've got a two trillion dollar company, right? All percentages, big numbers. Imagine like that's why the media pundits they love the um x percent or x billion wiped off the market like that number's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger like you could just fool people with the the law of large numbers again and again and again um in other news i I think you've been taking a look at some of the the, what's happening at the future fund yeah definitely that was i mean it's kind of a massive about face from them everyone likes to track the future fund and i mean there's been talk of making them manage default super because they manage something like 200 billion dollars of defined benefit pensions for government um and they were at, I think the AFR ran a kind of active management or active versus passive portfolio construction event. Yeah, Alpha Live or something. Yeah. yeah. And the Future Fund came out and basically said, uh, after going a lot of their, moving a lot of their portfolio back to passive and factor-based investing, they decided to, they're now looking at introducing active management again. And they think stock picking has got a role to play in the next 
kind of three to five years, which is um, incredibly interesting. Pretty big about face for them. Is it was there like more to that? Like more to that story? Like why they said that? Or I think this is the condition. So they were very much focused on the reversal of what's been happening in monetary policy for the last ten years. So falling interest rates lifted at all boats, and when they turned to going to index and passive, like a lot of people who mm. probably listen on here, you if you bought Vanguard in twenty nineteen or twenty twenty, you made exceptional returns or iShares yeah. or anything index, and they kind of seemingly saw the same thing. Whether that's truly the case or not, maybe they were focused on costs so they could uh, allocate more to private markets like we've discussed. Yeah. Um, but they're saying it's more difficult conditions and thus there's going to be more opportunity for manager skill, which is probably what you've been talking about with some with the likes of Sol Patterson over the last few weeks as well. Yeah, also like when you think about it, like this isn't um, something that's bubbling away in the back of my mind and why I just want everyone to be open-minded and not just go all guns blazing into index investing is um, we've also seen a, over the last couple of decades a fall in the number of listed companies around the world but also like fewer companies wanting to go public so like if you think about 10 or 20 years into the future what like you've got to know what role different types of investing play in a portfolio i think and i think one of the things you impressed upon me last year was like preparing for alternate futures like the things that you can't see um and so this is a good illustration of that perhaps where they've said well we're, op- we're open-minded enough to use everything. Um, and I think every investor should take a leaf out of that book. Like, We've got a question on it today, actually, about um, active management and small caps. And that's one of our golden rules that we talked about a few weeks ago as well, which is that people tend to think about it in arbitrary, arbitrary terms, that it's active or passive, yeah. and you have to pick one or the other. But it's by no means that. It's We've always seen it as you can mm-hmm. use both and you should use both. And yeah. it can depend on what the market environment is um, and certain ones will be, it'll be suited um, for different conditions at different times as well. Yeah. So don't, yeah. don't put it all in one. Um, I mean, you could say the last 12 months should have been perfect for active management as well, but the results were mixed as you've seen in mm. the past, but mm. also knowing what's in your index. So the Australian and US share markets are so concentrated into two or three sectors. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, in another piece of news I saw in your notes, so I'm not, I just don't know what this means, but um, he's stealing mine. <laughs> you said in the notes, Kieran bids for Blackmores, but then there's a line in there diversifying away from beer. I don't know much about Blackmores. Do they own beer? Is that what this is? No, Kieran. Kieran's the oh, right. massive Japanese. Brewer. Okay, right. Yeah. So they're diversifying away from beer to get um, to add Blackmores. You reckon? Yeah, and it probably talks. It talks about you know the Japanese approach to investing and buying mm. companies overseas as well. If we think every other country in the world has increased interest rates, but Japanese. Rates are incredibly low. This is another. We don't have the buttons today, unfortunately. <laughs> so, uh, but Japanese businesses are still borrowing at significantly lower levels than Australia or even you know Australian mortgage holders are. So, mm. the ability to buy Blackmores, which may not be growing at fifteen percent that it was three or four years ago, um, is attractive to a company where most of their you know their beer sales are growing at one to two percent. Yeah, yeah. And when you can leverage it with debt, you don't need a lot of at cheap debt. You don't need a lot of growth. That's true. Um, I think you'll see more of this, though. Um, I think a few different companies are, you know, there's been a lot of bids in the last yeah. few few months as people look for growth by acquisition rather than trying to do it organically, which is getting more difficult as costs of everything increase. Well, it's also a structural advantage for US companies. I think we talked about this a few weeks ago on the show where 
you know, low Australian dollar, uh, higher interest rates, it, it favors large companies that have strong balance sheets. And something that we always look for in, in businesses as well is the optionality, right? Like the habit, you have a strong balance sheet, not because, you know, you can leverage it up, but because you prepare for the future in a way that allows you to buy lower and buy good businesses when they're struggling. I'm not necessarily saying Blackmores is a good business. I think it's a, a business that's been built on something that we still don't know all of the uh, the efficacy of, but um, it's been a good brand and a good performer for some investors over the long term. There's been a bit of a wind back in the share price, but yeah, um, I've actually got a bit of a buy, hold, sell for you, Drew. Um, <laughs> Just uh, got a sneak peek of these before yeah. we came on as well. <laughs> so the first one is buy, hold, sell. <laughs> Carpet in toilets. Is this because you're renovating your house? Is no, the, no. I was just doing? thinking. I actually wrote this one when I was in the on the toilet. I was thinking, what could I what could I throw at him? And I just remembered um, a lot of people overseas do indeed have carpet in their toilets, and it just it boggles the mind. <laughs> it boggles the mind. Do you remember if you're old enough? Do you remember when they used to have the little um, carpet yes. things around the toilet bowl? Yes, they yes. Were the most disgusting things you've ever seen. Yes, I yeah, do it's remember. A, it's a hard sell for me. Hard sell. Hard sell. <laughs> Keep your short, feet warm, short and tell. <laughs> Wear socks. Okay. So another company that um, that we just mentioned at the top of the show has been in the news lately um, for good reasons for once, uh, at least from an investor's perspective, is Meta. So Meta stock buy, hold, sell. And obviously, this is not a recommendation. We just do this to have a bit of fun. So um, thoughts on Meta? I'm buying. Hmm. We well, own Fang. Big, so I guess if, yeah. If, if you check my screen time, uh, you'll see there's a lot of time on Instagram, <laughs> most of the, the meta platforms. I think they obviously a bit of a big misstep when they talked so much about uh, what's the not metaverse. Metaverse, yeah, yeah. when they changed the name to Meta. Um, but I think the latest report, which was much stronger than expected, still saw revenue fell. They talked about the future actually being the power of AI, and AI is the intro, almost an introduction to the metaverse. But um, they're so central to that AI, SEO, advertising, uh, and it's still just this really unique advertising platform. Even if we personally don't use it as much anymore, it's still got billions of users. Yeah. And then the thing to look at is like a lot of these, like Twitter's trying to transition to a paid model as well as an advertising model. Um, But it's a bit of a basket case. You look at a lot of the platforms around the world. I actually just tweeted um, one of the the owner of Tumblr, actually, uh, because he tweeted a thing saying how it's hard to transition a model from advertising to paid because it is so valuable to be an advertising only model. Uh, and obviously Facebook's been probably the best ever at that with this collection of brands with WhatsApp and Instagram and messenger and all that sort of stuff. So interesting. Okay. Last one, which is the one that's been topical lately. I said bond ETFs, but maybe we'll just go government bond ETFs by wholesale. Oh, that's still a buy for me. Interesting. It's, uh, I think we did see some more inflation news. Maybe that's my segue to the latest inflation data in Australia. Oh. Um, but uh, I think I was talking to a client yesterday uh, up here and yep. the ability to buy low-risk investments that are you offering reasonable yields. I think the, the government bond yield is still probably about 3 3.5%. Three and, um, and if if you see a recession that everyone's worried about, well, bond yields will fall and you might be able to get both you know, a, a reasonable income as well as a... Um, uh, some capital growth if you see the worst case scenario again. Yeah. Um, 
And I think, yeah, for the most part, like we're getting a lot of questions about this now. And I think it's probably still time to ask yourself if you should be positioning yourself. And inflation readings from uh, earlier this week actually showed that the monthly rate was falling. Um, I think it was above expectations from memory, the actual reading itself, but it was still on the way down, which is really positive. So if we had the fancy music, we'd be playing that right now for Drew, or so, shall I say Andrew Derrimuth. Um, but yep. all, all things good. So strong sell on carpet and toilets, Meadows <laughs> of buy, and bond ETFs, tentative buy, maybe still uh, on the radar. I think it should okay. be considered part of any portfolio. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um Okay, so we're going to get to some questions now. And as an, as always, there was a disclaimer that played on the video version of this podcast. But if you are listening only, it's important to remember that there is uh, only general information given in these podcasts. Even if we do answer your questions, we don't know your situation. And that's why we also ask as an extra layer for a funny name when you submit your question. You can do that in the show notes for any of the podcasts that we run at RASC. There's a thing that says, ask a question. Just click that link and select the Australian Investors Podcast if you want it featured here on a Saturday. If you want it, say, for example, on the Business Podcast, select that. If you want it on the Property Podcast, select that, and so on and so forth. But the first question comes from Hugh. <laughs> Rection. <laughs> I'll keep out the, the, mid, the middle name. The, there's a middle name. They've just given us the um, G uh, yeah, in the middle. Could- People clearly understand our level of humor. So yes. that's great. Okay. So Hugh G. Rection um, has written in to say, hey, all, uh, you've mentioned on previous episodes that when investing in small caps, taking the managed funds option is probably the best way forward. With this in mind, can you please suggest some names for both the Australian and international funds? Thanks, leg ends. That was uh, Hugh who said that. So obviously we've said in the past um, that when you look at markets where there's things like information asymmetry or when there are uh, opportunities where, for example, someone with an active investment approach, a professional, um, has the genuine edge, um, there was there's a better chance than otherwise that they might do better than the index. And Drew, we talk about this a lot. Like there are multiple reasons for this. And that's why if you look at this, say like Spiva data or some of the other data sources, it tends to be the case that there are markets where index funds don't always do as well say like in large cap us it's typically index funds win yeah but outside of that there are other markets where um active management can add some value so just some thoughts on this one mate yeah, you think there's there's less informational advantage in large or mega cap stocks because there'd be 50 yeah. analysts that cover microsoft's report to the point that the analyst uh, forecast for revenue is within like two or three percent of what actually comes, yeah. Um, and it's the complete opposite for smaller companies, where you go from five hundred companies in the S P five hundred to thirty thousand other companies they can look at around the world. So there's an informational advantage for people that are willing to be niche and look at a company more closely than others. Um, mm. And I think there's a lot a lot of information is available when you talk to those companies and talk to the businesses around those companies at the same time. So I think a lot of that active edge comes from uh, the information and the ability to do fundamental research, which is knocking on doors uh, and and even getting mm. better better access to people that are part of those businesses. Whereas if you're talking to Meta, you get like an investor relations person. If you're talking to a sauna company in Norway, <laughs> yeah. you might actually get the CEO depending on the size. Absolutely. Yeah. So we've had a few different folks on the show in the past that talk about small caps. In the early days of the podcast, we had a lot of small cap managers come on the show. Um, of course, you can 
still do your own active small cap investing. Um, the important thing to note, however, just before we get to some names, is the reason, like the reason that some markets are better suited to active management, is because the information or the analytics or those types of things simply aren't there, which means that it is a riskier part of the market. So just to, to double click on that, if you do decide to invest in these areas, there's a chance for more variability that you could pick a good manager or you, a bad manager. You could pick a good manager that just does bad for three years. So it's important to keep that in mind. Um, I think style sectors and, yeah. and the suitability of the current economic conditions which people don't necessarily understand. Like style can be as simple as value, growth, or income. But yeah. then when you look at smaller companies, particularly in Australia, a lot of them refuse or uh, won't invest into certain sectors. So like you get a lot of smaller companies, managers that won't invest in resources or won't invest in energy or commodities or yeah. ones that will. And you can get very different. Like if you didn't have resources or commodities in the last 12 months as a smaller company manager, you, you generally would have struggled to keep up with the yep. index or with the rest of the market. And probably so you would have got smoked if you had technology companies in your portfolio. Exactly. So it's understanding what they what then what they have and don't have in their portfolio. Yep. And then also um, why are you adding it? So essentially what you're looking for is diversification and a, and a broader range of revenue and exposure, revenue exposure or revenue diversification from the companies that are in your portfolio. And how does that counter with what you already hold? So if you're holding VAS and IOZ, you're going to have a big materials and uh, financials exposure, but not much in tech and industrial. So yeah. can you can you counter that through smaller companies? One of the things to keep in mind is the VAS ETF, If you, that is the core of your portfolio. You do get the ASX 200 to 300, which a lot of small cap managers in Australia actually consider to be in their ballpark. Yeah. So um, whereas, say, if you have like IOZ or uh, A200 or STW, they're the ASX 200. So just being aware of what's inside or outside of that range is really important too. Um, but there are plenty of good active managers. When it comes to small cap companies, obviously I want people with a track record. Um, some of the comp some of the managers that I like tend to be more growth focused, which means that their recent results have been hit pretty hard. Like for example, Lakehouse Capital, small companies fund. Um, and in global small caps, we've had, um, I know you've got it on your list, but we've had uh, Nick Cregan from Fairlight on the show. I think he's just a super impressive operator, him and the team, uh, for global small caps. Um, Tobias from uh, Ausbill, I think he's, yeah, yeah. All really good managers have appeared on the show before. Probably ones to put on your short list. I don't know, Drew, you've got a lot more than I do. Yeah, I kind of went to Morningstar. Like we've got some we invest into, but I'm wary of going, that's, they fit the way we build portfolios and don't necessarily fit everyone. So I've yep. got a broader list from Morningstar um, and things like Australian Ethical were on there, which is the very green um, yep. or more more ethical and sustainable investment. So higher tech and healthcare exposures. Uh, that's domestically. Um, Benelong, uh, Hyperion, which I'm sure you talk, talked about before, but they're a very growth yep. oriented group. And then going global, uh, yeah, feel like we've met Nick quite a few times, Ausbill, Ausbill have a domestic and a mm. global smaller companies, which both have been both are quite quite interesting. Uh, I think one of the challenges we have as advisors is investing into smaller companies is generally uh, because the market of companies they can invest in is quite small, and they have some liquidity restrictions, as in you can't buy a billion dollars of the smallest small cap stock mm. uh, that they actually get capped in size. So you have to be wary as an advisor if you're recommending a, a small cap strategy that ends up being 
hit hitting capacity and you can't put more clients into it as you as people join you over the coming years so Absolutely. something we're always considered considered of as well yeah so a lot of individual investors just so you know if you haven't come across what drew's talking about before what a lot of these small cap funds they should have what we call a capacity constraint or they'll have a, like a basically a limit to which they'll accept investors and typically what we find is the really good small cap fund managers whether they're just focusing in australia or international small caps they fill up very quickly. Obviously, with the global ones, you have a bit more scope. They might take you know two or three or five billion dollars into those strategies. But in Australia, you might have a small cap fund that only wants to take a hundred, two hundred million dollars because they can't be nimble enough if they take any more money. And to be honest, like you want them to do that because you want to be there and you want them to use their full range of skills rather than just accumulate assets. But that also means that they typically have performance fees. So they want their kind of pound of flesh. So that's something you've got to get used to is typically a higher fee load on small cap funds um, because they know that they can't grow to the size of Magellan a few years ago and make hundreds of millions of dollars. So they'll make it up with performance fees instead. And you just want to be wary. We've always watched that, the making sure the performance fees are linked to an absolute, almost an absolute return focus. Yeah. So not just outperforming the benchmark because you hate to pay anyone pay performance fees when say the market's down 30 and you're down 28. Mm. It's not necessarily what you're <laughs> looking for, no. um, which is the case for every part of the industry, not just smaller companies as well. Yeah, true. And I would just add one final thing there is um, there has been an emergence of lower fee funds, so lower management fee funds. They'll have an absolute, or a fixed return hurdle might be say like 4% or 5%. But you got to remember like even if they don't have the, the lower fee, uh, even if they have the lower fee as a management fee, if their performance fee is only benchmarked to 4 or 5% per annum, they could probably just put the money in cash and nearly meet that hurdle anyway. So it's important that you understand what the hurdle is and if it's acceptable to you before you start paying away uh, and make sure there's a high watermark uh, on the performance fee as well, which means that they have to get back to prior performance. Um, okay, next question comes from Donatello Versace, who says, love your potty, the banter, and your sense of humor. Well, someone's got it. That must be our one listener, Drew. Uh, <laughs> question is, NIB shares. This is obviously the health insurance company. I have been doing a dividend reinvestment plan rather than taking the dividend. Because of the uncertainty of the market, possible crash, and threat of a recession, I have been considering selling some although it is doing really well at the moment. What do you guys think? Well, there's a lot in here. Um, like there's, a, there's almost like this big macro uh, call about uncertainty in the market, possible crash and threat of recession. And then the other one is dividend reinvestment plan. So we've kind of spoken about the DRP a few times. Yeah, definitely. There's a couple of double questions. I'd be more looking at it from a portfolio construction level, as we kind of always mm. talk about. Um, and is it a, you're talking about potentially, and there's, you're also talking about what's wrong with the market. Is the market going to crash? I always hate that question. Uh, but is it a significantly large overweight position that it, it warrants selling? Um, if it's doing well, then we have that simple rule, which if some, if a holding doubles your average holding size, you want to bring mm. it back to average. Otherwise, it's going to have an over, uh, you know, a massive impact. And I've, I've dealt with clients who have held CSL or CBA since they were $2. And it's, it's a good strategy to have, a difficult one to implement a lot of the time, particularly mm. when a company is doing well. But just making sure your exposure is remaining at an appropriate level. Um, and I think NIB being an insurance company has benefited from higher interest rates. So that's a certain condition that benefits that company. Will that continue in the future would be yeah. a consideration I'd be having. Um, mm. 
And then I think worrying about a crash and that being the driving factor between selling it is something we'd always advise away from. You know, you're, you're investing for long-term returns. If this is part of a diversified portfolio, a crash is going to happen every year at some point, whether it's 5 or 10, 10%. Um, and the threat of recession, as we've seen in the last 6 to 12 months in every market, is priced in quicker than the recession actually comes. And it tends to rally before then. So timing the market is incredibly difficult, maybe position sizing more appropriate uh, and, and trying to make sure you're not overexposed. So if you've got three other insurance companies, maybe that's a, a broader consideration you'd have when yeah. making this decision. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we get this question a lot, right? People end up in a company that does well and they don't know when to sell. And that typically comes back from not knowing why you're buying it in the first place. So um, not necessarily saying Donatello that you uh, don't know what you're doing, but um, more so to say like typically when you write up like an investment thesis, when you have a view on something or a reason for doing something, that you might just write the small paragraph for why you've invested in it and have a set of rules. And um, this is like you're, what, you're, what you're effectively doing is you're trying to make a what we call a bottom-up decision using top-down considerations. So you're trying to make a decision about a company based on what's happening in the economy. And typically, most investors choose to use like either at the, at the portfolio level, that's where they'll think about things like recession or market sell-offs. And so but at the individual security or company level, you'd use bottom-up research. So like why do you own the company? Is it still investment grade for you? Uh, do you think it has a positive outlook on the future? Um, these types of things. And it's where those meet, those two considerations. Okay, what's the portfolio doing? Uh, and that typically controls and accounts for most of the return you'll earn from a, your wealth creation over time. Uh, and then the actual up bottom-up analysis requires you to understand the company. Uh, in this instance, I don't know NIB well enough to have a very strong comment on the business. I know it's a really quality business. It's done well for a very long time. Uh but what I would say is just remember why you invested in it uh, and has that been met? Like has that, maybe you had a thesis around, well, I think it could get to X share price because it can get this number of policyholders or something like this. And maybe that's been met and maybe that's a, a signal for you to lighten the load. As for DRP, I mean, if you're concerned about it, uh, the individual company that is, well, just turn the DRP off. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and finally, like I think the actual bit about the uncertainty of the market, possible crash and threat of recession, um, for me, overall, in my journey, speaking with people, that type of thinking has led to more worse outcomes in decision-making than it has led to more positive outcomes. Yeah. Um, and people don't know that immediately because the long-term benefit of being invested doesn't happen overnight. You don't see the benefit of that. So just make sure you're making the decision for the right reasons. In this case, I think it's for what your view is on the company and as Drew said, the portfolio overall. And if we, we think if you've got your asset allocation or your overall strategy right, you you don't have to worry. I mean, you naturally will think mm. about it a bit and maybe there's a little tweaking here and there if something you know something un, uh, unexpected happens. Um, but if your higher level asset allocation is right, you've got some you've got enough cash to make you feel comfortable. You've got fixed income and bonds, and you're diversified across global companies, not just Australian. Well, the threat of a recession in Australia doesn't really shouldn't really concern you too much because you know other parts of your portfolio will you know carry the load for a period of time um and allow you to stay exposed yeah absolutely and what if you're wrong is always absolutely, difficult. Yeah. I've, I've never seen someone who's been able to buy back in to the market yeah uh, at the right time they're always there's always easy to sell it's incredibly difficult to buy what's what's really 
what people I think underestimate in themselves is they have a view on the market. They say, oh, it's about to crash. But what happens when it's actually crashing? Most people that are spooked now are more spooked in the crash. So they don't ne- they never invest. And that yeah. is what I mean is the worst possible outcome overall for most people. Most people don't get it right. Um, yeah. Usually so if- yeah, you end up selling close to the bottom because that's when the headlines get the worst. Mm. And most people won't buy back until they feel like the market's settled. Yeah. But we saw in 2020 and in 2010, but the, the market run 15%, 20% in a week. Yeah. I think it was in 10% it. of the day in 2020. So, yeah, a lot um, of those studies, Drew, you know, the ones that go like, if you just missed these worst days, and here's our strategy to do that. Um, but then they also don't show that, well, actually, if you just invested on the good days, of course, you're, if you didn't, if you missed those days, your returns worse. would be significantly worse. Yeah. Um, like something that people tend to underestimate is right before a crash, the market tends to rally really hard. Yeah. And that's where we measure the fall from. But if you miss those days where it rallied really hard, you would miss out on probably outperformance. So, I mean, yeah, so many views on this, but it's easier just to stay invested if you've got the portfolio constraints right. Um, okay, Finance Bromance says, and it's a big question, big fan of the show and really enjoy the investor and finance pods. Great. What about the property pod and the business pod finance, Bromance? Come on. No cross-plugging. Um, no cross yeah, come on. <laughs> uh, I recently spoke to a financial planner and moved to a retail super fund that completely changed my, to match my risk profile, very risky. A um, bit of a winking face in there. 34 years old. We can't take that into account, obviously, but we will kind of set the expectations here. Um, they've said, go on to say that they think that they've done extremely well uh, in their predictions, except they think they've actually underestimated the impact of compounding and they're going to have a huge amount of money in super, much more than they expected. And they said, when someone hits a really high threshold in this super, what options should you do then? I don't want to keep feeding the growing beast just to leave the next generation millions of dollars they didn't work hard for. I'm wondering if working with an ABN or, and contributing more to income to outside of my super portfolio is a good idea. Maybe head down the SMSF path or maybe just grow it massively and splurge in retirement. Um, okay, so a few things. We can't give personalized advice on the pod. Please speak to a financial planner because clearly you're in that stage where you can afford to do so. Uh, but what we can say is, if I just generalize this question, Drew, is... Well done. A lot of, hmm? Well done. Well done. Yep. A lot of people do kind of oversave for retirement. Yes, that is a thing uh, where people oversave and they have more money than they expected. So then what happens if they have that habit and they keep earning and they want to invest? What should they do? It's a great question. And there's there's actually a multitude of options um, to choose from. And it really, you'd start, you've probably gone through these before, maybe on the finance podcast as well, mm-hmm. where essentially you're trying to have other entities that are built for retirement income and how do you and I think for most people if you're earning a significant amount of money and you're putting a lot into super you're probably worried about how much tax you're paying at the same time well I think we all are um was it Kerry Packer that said don't, don't, don't <laughs> pay more tax than you need to yeah. um, and that was uh, in in very simple terms <laughs> I don't think I'd ever quote Kerry Packer um <laughs> uh, uh but basically it starts as simple as putting it into uh Potentially, depending on if there's a spouse in the family that is earning a lower portion of income, that's the first option. Uh, And then you start to open up ideas like a family trust or an investment company or what we'd call a corporate beneficiary and what accountants use as corporate beneficiaries. Um, Family trust would be the natural selection after super, but it's worth keeping in mind that the $3 million cap that the media talks about isn't a cap. It's it's a point at which tax increases at, at the moment 
pending 1 July. The cap on per individual super balances is $1.7 million each. So if you partnered, you could easily have $3.4 million between yep. you. So it could be contributing in your partner's name. Um, and that's essentially gets you to $3.4 million. And then once you get to that point, then you'd start to think about, or bef before then, if you're not keen to lock up more money in preservation uh, or be, you know, that that locked in nature of superannuation, then you'd consider a family trust. And the benefit, uh, naturally, that would depend on what your objectives are. Are you worried about tax? Do you have other people you can stream the income to? Or you're just adding an extra, are you worried about asset protection as well? So are you running your own business? Are you at, at risk of being sued or bankrupt at any point? Um, but essentially, a family trust just offers a, not a shelter, just a pass-through entity that helps you stream income from investments to other people in, within yep. your family. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I guess that this is the wonderful thing. If you've, you're in that situation, you've, you've got basically the combination of all the good factors. You've got time on your side, clearly got the income, you've already got the assets and you're paying attention to like your financial well-being, like you actually are hands-on. Um, and there are so many options here. I think go and speak to a couple of financial planners um, and hear their perspectives. Uh, it's probably going to cost you, but it, clearly you have the ability to get those perspectives and decide what makes sense for you. Um, and a long way to go to retirement, Drew, there is regulatory risk with all of these things. So there's Definitely. regulatory risk if you set up a trust, maybe they change the rules for a trust, maybe they change the rules for investment companies, maybe they change the rules for streaming income. Super is definitely going to change. I can almost guarantee that. Um, Every year, so, it'll change a little bit. Yeah. So it's probably just making yourself, putting yourself in a position where you have those multiple risks considered across each of the different types of structures and strategies that you're pursuing. Um, so that basically your financial situation can't break. That's probably what I'd say. I'd be wary as well that most of these entities, apart from superannuation, are just a deferring of tax, that you are going to eventually pay mm. tax on those benefits. So if tax is a, a main driver, I know we didn't mention that in here. Uh, and then we've got a rule of thumb for kind of self-funded retirees is that you, at retirement, you probably want at least two thirds of your wealth in superannuation given the tax benefits and one third outside, whether that's your house or your trust. Mm. Um, just for that additional flexibility and diversifying, again, diversifying regulatory yep. risk and conditions of release. So, Yep, like it. Uh, Hugh Jass says, <laughs> I think Hugh's been on the show before, but this is a different Hugh to the first we one. We have but to I, add an R18 plus rating to our <laughs> <laughs> <It's been> <laughs> to Spotify. <laughs> well, but no, it's, it's Hugh Jass. Uh, Jass is spelled J-A-R-S-E. So this could be Hugh's actual name. So no discrimination here, Drew. <laughs> Um, Hugh Jars says, is it a good idea to invest with a personal loan rather than a conventional margin loan? If I get a personal loan with 8% interest fixed and I can expect investment returns of around 10%, aren't the odds pretty good? Especially the interest is tax deductible, question marks. Um, do banks let you do that? Is it a thing? And if so, is it a good thing? Uh, <laughs> well, you got to unpack this question. Yeah. I mean, so just real quick. Hugh is basically saying, well, can I just use a loan to invest in something that goes up more than that? The interest on an investment loan is typically tax deductible. Speak to your accountant. But um, it's incredibly... Uh, the reason that we say to avoid these things is it magnifies returns and it can increase risk beyond what you think is acceptable. Now, in a traditional or conventional, in this instance, margin loan, if the value of your investments falls, they can be sold or you have to stump up more money to cover the 
the the loss that the whoever's providing the loan to, whether it's a broker or a bank, is providing to you. So in this instance, they've said personal loan. Um, but the problem with personal loans is that the interest rate tends to be a lot higher. And unsecured. And, yeah, yeah and unsecured. unsecured by anything. So your rate should be significantly higher than 10%. And that's where that's why a lot of people tend to use their home as um, or a property as security against a loan to invest in shares. So it brings the interest cost down. And I mean, there's a bit of me- like mathematical uh, hurdles that we can jump through here, but for the most part, an 8% loan and you're expecting a 10% return, yes, the 8% is probably tax deductible. Obviously, there's a benefit at your marginal tax rate, but honestly, that's I think that's pretty scary, for, at least for me, I, I think it's pretty scary. I think the assumption, like we have this built-in assumption now that markets always give you 10%. Yeah, uh, and no. yeah, over thirty years they have given you about you know nine to ten percent on average. But you just like the last three years alone, and this kind of would bring the question of how comfortable are you with volatility. We had two negative seven percent years and a thirty percent year in Australian equities alone. So it's not a straight line for ten percent. Were you a, uh, and if you so if you invested at the beginning of twenty twenty one. Would you have been comfortable with the value of your portfolio being less than your loan? So being in negative equity almost from the beginning uh, and the risk, as you were saying, it of using leverage, it just accelerates the level of volatility and the potential gains and also the risk of making, you know, emotional decisions when things get challenging. Yeah. So it's and- always worry that negative equity is probably what I see the risk of any time you're using any leverage, which can't really happen on margin loans. And if you did, if you got ten people in the row and they all did the same thing over a different period of time, maybe two or three of them would do extremely well. But it's the others that we worry about that don't do well from it. And so um, it's just being mindful of that, and also the expected returns. Like over 122 years, Drew, to the end of 2022, the average calendar year return from the ASX was 13. percent Yeah. Right. But will that continue going forward? I'm not banking on that. So the Japanese market went nowhere for 15 years like actually yeah. flat so would then would the leverage be worth it during that period of time there are um there are structured products who that are, they're like there's one that sponsors our finance podcast um, um so invest smart is a sponsor of our australian finance podcast and they have this product called fund later and basically there's there's a fee it's not interest there's a fee for doing it. it's kind of like buy now pay later for for stocks and in that they basically have a fixed rate of interest, which may be where you get this from you um, and it invests in one of their portfolios that they've set up, which is just ETFs and you just pay it back. And some people, and it's a fair point to make. Some people use these products as forced savings. That's what we say about the mortgage. Some people use these as I, you know, I know I need to invest, but unless someone tells me this bill is due every month, I'm not going to do it. And the hope is that the, that habit, once you've paid off the loan, turn like continues on into the future. So there may be some other benefit from using these types of products, but just be very wary. Be very wary. Um, the next question comes from Avago, who says, is it better to for a retiree to invest in ETFs via an SMSF or to invest a lump sum via Aussie Super, still via an SMSF? Is this even possible? I think... The- Again, I love my unpacking. It's probably <laughs> worth giving some consideration to what super, so superannuation is just a wrapper. There's three different types of super fund. You can have an industry fund, uh, mm-hmm. you can have a SMSF, which was a question in here, and you can have a retail fund. So a retail would be like Commonwealth Bank Super or 
Yeah, BT, all those sort of groups, uh, Australian Ethical, or uh, then Australian Super obviously falls into the industry fund option. Um, I think the and there, there's very broad questions here as well. Uh, I think one of the the simple answer would be no. Aussie Super is a is a confined product. You can't go and buy an Aussie Super ETF or an Aussie Super fund off the shelf. If you want to invest with Aussie Super, you have to be part of their custody and have Aussie Super as a trustee of your superannuation account. Um, but you can, and it's hard to say what's uh, which option is better as well. So it's yep. what my question with with people considering alternatives for the superannuation is, what's your objective? Do you want transparency? Do you want to know where every dollar is invested? Do you focus on fees, noting that you know, industry funds historically were the lowest fees and not necessarily the lowest fees anymore. Do you want control? Do you want to pick indivi every individual investment that's going in your portfolio? Um, and then do you do you have ethical or ESG considerations you want to include as well? So our, the way we approach providing advice is to ask and get answers to all those questions and then determine which portfolio, whether that's the underlying investments or which pension fund is best suited to each person mm. um, and not making it kind of an arbitrary what's is one better or the other because it is very personal yeah that's a good point um this may be also touching on this question may also be touching on something that we mentioned a few months ago which is that you can have both so you can have yeah say like aussie super and then an smsf where, which does the predominant amount of your investing so you could have aussie super for the insurance just having enough money or in there always to cover that insurance uh, and then you have an smsf purely for investing um but i mean there are there are many, like like you said, there's so many other considerations. One of the things that we always say on the show, don't go and change your super fund until you've fully thought about insurance, about your long-term objectives, about the tax consequences, like so many other things um, that you really want to think through carefully. I think you can use Aussie super and just big industry funds. They do have a thing where you are allowed to, instead of just taking their pre-mixed options, you can... Um, you have some control, very limited control of say like different types of ETFs that you could invest in or different shares from Australia. It's quite limited and it does cost money, but that's maybe like a bit of a halfway, maybe not quite halfway, but it's a little bit of control. Um, but so many considerations to, to to take into account, including tax and around lump sums and um, cont contributions there. So the SMSF question. Association has said it's worth noting that um, I think SMSF is a competitive fee and performance for anywhere from $250,000 upwards. Yeah. Um, yeah. We tend to say it's higher than that, um, but as a minimum, it's it's pretty interesting. So it can Absolutely. depend on what your balance is as to yeah. which which option is most appropriate. Yeah. If you've got 50 grand, you're probably not thinking about SMSFs as much as some of these new age platforms want you to roll into their, their off-the-shelf thing. Um, so the second last question comes from Emru Deremuth. Um, so and this one is why is computer share so terrible? I sold a share X dividend and I'm entitled to the dividend because I changed brokers. I needed to update my payment details, but because I did not, the share didn't show up in computer share. So I couldn't update the payment details via the website. I called them. They got increasingly shot with me, told me to use the automated phone system to update my payment details for the upcoming dividend. I did that. Didn't receive the dividend. I called them. They denied they would do that. They kept saying they will get back to me. It's been three months. I really doubt they will. How can I recoup the dividend I am entitled to? Any suggestions? Keep annoying them. <laughs> <laughs> like there's no, it's, yeah, I've tried, I mean, the physical form, but then a lot of the times I don't accept the physical form anymore. 
yeah. if you've uh, if you've seen that. So it seems like you found a loophole, and I think it's like a lot of businesses at the moment that are struggling with the amount of work and availability of of staff within their businesses. So um, it can be a bit clunky, and that seems like there's a question every week about registry. So hurry <laughs> up with a the statement. ASX, move it to blockchain. <laughs> More of a statement. Yeah, uh, I talked about this on Self Wealth Live this week, where I mentioned that. People get so frustrated with computer share link, their broker, but really in order for the broker to do something innovative, the ISX has to allow it. And if the ISX has to allow it, the registries have to respond to that. And then like the regulator has to get involved and people are just like, why is this system? Why can't it innovate? Well, it's because there's about five different factors of, or entities competing for like what they want to do and how they want to do it. And then there's all the agency and, incumbency so that's that's typically what happens um so we can't help <laughs> yeah, yeah it's got to stay on the phone try and do the physical form if you have to uh, and make it you know was it the squeaky wheel gets the most oil yeah um, i'm using a lot of dad kind of yeah, you are you're on holidays it's fair. Yeah. um okay so actually there's a final question beyond down the next page so there's two more to go one of them's a quick one but this one's from morgan's housemate it says hi team thanks for the great content love the podcast must be talking about the other shows uh, i have a home loan and the property has quite a bit of equity however i have a very small emergency fund what are the implications of increasing my home loan and putting that money in an offset account to sit untouched as an emergency fund thanks fantastic personal finance question here drew yeah i mean I think you guys have discussed on the finance podcast a lot as well. And yeah. I go along one line of that, which is I'm comfortable with money sitting in, in an offset account and building it up and building it up because I know I'm saving interest on it. But not everyone is, uh, I mean, if I say frugal on here, I'm sure there'll be a few yeah. people that say I'm not frugal. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm comfortable with that and having access to that money. Like I, I don't naturally go out and buy something overly expensive because I know I've got a significant you know, money sitting in my offset account, offsetting my loan. Um, yeah. So it depends on how you spend and it's very much that behavioral side of finance where sometimes it's better to have two, you can have multiple offset accounts. So maybe that's an easier way to hide an offset account from yourself if you're a person that can that um, struggles to not spend the money that is building up in your account. Yep. But I mean, for me, it's a no brainer. You, everything goes on credit card. The credit card's already always repaid, uh, paid off in full every month. I mean, you know, lucky positions. And then... Uh, that means your money stays in your offset account for as long as possible and every mortgage repayment you make more relevant than ever today given interest rates are like five or six percent is reduced by the amount that's offsetting and so your, your interest is, re is reduced and the amount that you're paying off principal is significantly higher yep um yeah you it's probably have a different opinion completely but no well i'm not a big fan of credit cards but just because if i say it on air then uh, uh someone <laughs> might get hurt but um yeah i i think uh, for business credit cards, however, it's probably a different consideration. I think they're very sensible um, because they make they, for floats. They're better than overdrafts and all that sort of stuff. So they make a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, the question is, can you make sure that if you've got money in your offset account, you can keep that money there? And it's so, so you may have to refinance for this, right? If you have the equity and you kind of like draw that equity out and put it in an offset account, which means you should speak to a broker, uh, a good broker about this, because if you... For example, refinance right now, um, will you be in a situation where you get some of your loan fixed? I don't know if that's a good or a bad idea right now. That's probably a consideration that you would want to think about. But the other thing is if you're in a couple, if you have a partnership, what is your, how, is your, how is your significant other with money? Because if they see a couple hundred grand or whatever sitting in an offset account, 
that they can use, they have to be on the same page as you. So make sure you have that conversation before you do this. Because that's, so my prior point about forced savings, debt can actually be an opportunity to get that forced savings, but it has to apply to both people that have access to that account. So just be mindful of that. Okay. Final question comes from Mr. Blank. It says, <laughs> um, when a lot of people have a concern that when they see a financial advisor, they compare the the cost of the financial advisor to the income that they receive. So let's say, for example, they're a retiree, Drew, and they've yep. got a portfolio of a million bucks and the financial advisor says you could probably draw 4% or so. That's 40 grand, but the advisor charges 10 grand a year or something just for around figures. They say, well, that's 20% of my income. Thoughts? I think it's a it's a difficult one, but it's it's a natural thing when you're paying a fee for something because the, the most important thing when you're talking to a retired client or or someone seeking is, is the passive income that they're getting on the other side. But we know that financial advice fees are, are much more than just producing that income. Hmm. You know, it's It goes from everything to helping you reduce regulatory risk, making sure you're getting the maximum tax deductions or you're, you're saving money or avoiding what we talk about is avoiding one bad investment on a portfolio that's, yielding, that's providing an income of $40,000 can be worth significantly more than a year's fee as mm. well. Um, and naturally, uh, advice fees should generally be somewhat tax deductible. So I think advice, narrowing advice fees, they're actually for a broad range of, of, of benefits and the value advice goes well beyond just the investment decisions. It's the ability to pick up the phone and call your advisors. It's the constant reviews. It's making sure you don't sell everything when the market tanks or try to buy everything when making you stick to your long-term strategy and benefit from, you know, gain the benefits of compounding. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we talk about this a lot. It's not just with financial advisors, but the idea of total return, right? Um, A lot of people only consider one part of their pie where they say, well, I'm retired. I'm focused on income. What about their capital gains? Um, We had Simon Russell on the show not too long ago who talked about this kind of psychological bias that tends to be the case for retirees where they preference income so much, then they forget that there's the capital component that goes into a portfolio as well. And uh, as you said, then there's the other behavioral element of an advisor is basically a gatekeeper at a particular point in your life where they just add a buffer uh, to decision-making that can be emotional, and not based necessarily on experience. So what price do you put on that? Well, that's an important consideration for every client to take into account for themselves because that's why you pay the expert, right? Um, you know, the difference with a mortgage broker um, is that most people don't know how they're getting paid. It's They're getting paid from the bank and they just think it's great. So um, we don't want that in financial advice because we want people to know that the fee is for a professional to help you. And yeah. so consider the entire benefit that you get for that fee is probably my advice there. Uh, some great questions. We've got one final thing other than if you've got a joke ready, but I don't know if you're in a very jokey mood being up um, on the Queensland. No, I've got a order. couple. Okay. Got okay. A couple. So, yep. so we've got to pick the, the the best question and name. I have a lot of respect for the Morgan's housemate uh, just to bring Morgan Housel back into the conversation this week, but I'm actually <laughs> going to go um, if I could pick Drew, I'm actually going to go with finance bromance. Yeah, agree. Because it was a great question about, you know, fantastic, good on you for saving money and doing all of this sort of stuff. And 
being in a wonderful position. But it was a fantastic question about, well, what are the options outside of super and how do I think about that? And I think that was just a really enlightening question. So finance bromance, if you are the, if you are the person who asks that question, send us an email on the RAS websites, get in touch any way you know how, and uh, you'll be uh, given the value investor program, which is a complete value investing curriculum that I put together. It's available on RASC education. You get it for free. It's 499 claims for free. So well done to you. Okay. Andrew Derrimuth, we're going to cross to you now. <laughs> Um, which for those that don't know, Andrew Derrimuth uh, is actually in Queensland because he's trying to win board seats in the new RBA board. Um, so he's like getting all of the peoples around the country to vote for him. He, that's why I actually shaved my beard off yesterday. Yeah, that's, that's there was a rumor that Andrew Derrimuth was running down Cabal Ave last night um, with a sign saying, vote for me, uh, handing out some things as well. So, um, Andrew, take it away. What have you got for us? Well, given your uh, activity on Instagram this week uh, <laughs> and with, with the comments on Meta, I, I have a dad joke related to fishing. Oh, okay. Yes. I'm a fisherman and I'm dating a mermaid. I met her online. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, dad says jokes. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that, it's, it's like that's just a wall break there into different... <laughs> Parts of my life. Um, well, Drew, thank you. That's a, that's a wonderful. Um, we should give Drew a score. If you if you do want to score him, <laughs> please write in. <laughs> please write into us. Um, but, mate, heaps of fun. People can find out more about you by following the link in the show notes that says financial planning. Um, I think there's another one there for mortgage broking. Uh, and also for the RAS core, if you want to get in contact with me, you can do that in there. Uh, you'll find Drew on Twitter, dmidi13. Prolific. Drew.r.meredith. I had to professionalize. Oh, did you? If I'm going for the RBA role, I have to have a proper Instagram handle. <laughs> Drew.r.meredith. Yeah. I feel like if you spun up a new account under Andrew Derrimuth and have a very fancy looking photo, you probably get much more followers and just comment get on Get a blue tick, like, maybe? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You have zero followers and get a blue tick, I'm sure. Um, but anyway, mate, great fun chatting to you. Enjoy the rest of your holiday. Don't work too hard and uh, I'll see you next week. Will do. Good to see you. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.